Hi there. In this episode, we talk about issues of trauma, domestic violence, gender-based violence. Whilst we don't talk about it in graphic detail, it's something we discuss. So if this is a sensitive or difficult area for you, I don't want this to be triggering in any way. So I'm just giving you a heads up before we proceed. Okay, let's start the show. Sadiso, a musician, songwriter, producer and composer. I also teach. I'm fascinated by process, how we make what we make, why we make what we make. As a musician, I'm always learning from and inspired by other creatives, other musicians, artists, the arts itself, people. In short, life all inform the music I make. And I think that learning from others enriches not only our own art, but the arts. And why holding up the ladder? Well, because we're all trying to get somewhere and I think we build something stronger if we help each other. If we hold up the ladder rather than pull it up from under us as we climb. I'll be talking to all kinds of creatives about process, lessons learned, things that inspire us, the music we're listening to, what makes us who we are and the help we've had along the way. So join me as we climb, holding up the ladder. There's a change of, change of management as in the sense that there were black, black people now in power, but yet the same policies were still in place. Mm-hmm. Um, corruption, and, and, and unfortunately what Zuma stood for in, our, in, in the era in which he ran for was corruption. Mm-hmm. He, he was the guy that, that everyone glorified for not have studied or worked his way to the top. It was all conniving and, uh, and exploiting people and then, and then you get rich. If you've been following the podcast, you'll know that I'm half South African and I like to talk about South Africa a lot. I love South Africa. It's home for me as much as London is my home. I often say South Africa is a place of extremes. The good things are incredible and the bad things are terrible. And it seems to me that this is the place South Africa exists. Beautiful and harrowing, inspiring and exasperating. When I think about my guest today, photographer Leroy Jason, his work so well encapsulates these tensions. Beautiful, painful, frightening, yet you can't help but stare. An image comes to mind of a man being sprayed in the face with tear gas. The image is brutal, yet Leroy captures it in such a way that the movement in the picture gives it an elegance that makes it feel like a dance. Leroy started taking pictures at the age of 11 with a famous war photographer father who covered the apartheid struggle, the Rwandan genocide and the war in Kosovo. He's also responsible for that iconic picture of Lady Diana shaking hands with Nelson Mandela. A link to the image is in the podcast blurb. The realities of war and the effects of PTSD turned Leroy temporarily away from a career in photography, but it would seem that the pull was too strong to stay away. And someone had asked me what I want to do when I grow up. And I remember saying I want to be a police officer. And my father turned around, first one, super angry. He, because he was beaten by cops all of his life you know, um, as a black, black, black journalist, one, and just a black person in, in the, the rule of apartheid. 
Leroy explores ideas in a way that I had not previously considered and then uses photography to articulate these ideas. Days after our discussion, I found myself revisiting some of the things he said. Leroy's photography challenges, it provokes, it causes you to question. It's art, it's also journalistic. He has a way of merging those extremes I was telling you about. We recorded this episode in September, and at the time of airing, South Africa still has the highest rates of rape in the world. According to a report by the South African Medical Research Council, 25% of South African men have admitted to raping a woman, and of that 25%, nearly half said that they have raped more than one woman. The numbers are disturbing, especially when we know that a lot of rapes go unreported, and that these aren't numbers, they are real people. So that's, that's where this body of work started coming about, is, uh, is how we, I started looking at how I, how I saw men and uncles treat their women. And I also wanted to understand that we had, I was on the tipping point of just understanding that we had to recondition our way of thinking altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't just a trashy behavior. It was just like this thing that we considered being African. It wasn't being African. Leroy's work seeks to address the issues around gender-based violence, or GBV, not only from the perspective of South African women, to quote Leroy, taking their power back, but he also challenges men, African men, South African men, starting with himself, to look at their own behaviour, to reconsider their understanding of their masculinity, of African masculinity and sexuality, and he does so with his photography. So I used all that that skill to later on kind of illustrate and sexualize transgender um, women so that I could gain the attention of homophobic men for them to have this internal communication with themselves. Leroy was open, honest, vulnerable. He got us talking about things I didn't expect. And it's why I decided to divide this conversation into two parts. I tried to end the conversation like I always do, talking about music about the music he was listening to. But our conversation, steered by Leroy, took a different turn and we kind of wandered down this unexpected road so that Leroy ended up interviewing me. As I said, not what I expected. You'll have to tune into part two to listen to that. But for this episode, know that we talk about the police and citizen responses to COVID-19, Leroy's journey into photography, the work he explores and what is known as the fall generation and his photography series, Everything Must Fall. We talk about trauma, about violence, about masculine identity and sexuality, and we try to talk about music. Leroy, thank you so much for uh, agreeing to do this. All the way from Johannesburg, South Africa. Mzanzi, yes. Yes, Mzanzi. That, for those who don't know, Mzanzi means south, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yes, how, how actually has it been? Because obviously now we're recording season two and we've had a lockdown. We've had a pan. Well, we still have a pandemic. We've had a lockdown. How has it been um, as a photographer documenting things? And I actually want to quote you. Um, you said, you know, Photography comes from, and this is what you said, the common ground between storytelling, artistry, and my life. Photography, when you're forced to stay indoors and your lockdown was much more intense than ours in London, how did you manage it? Um, well, I, I just used this opportunity, one, to kind of allow myself to, 
where I could reinvent myself. I could use this opportunity to kind of reinvent myself as an artist. Um, as a photographer or a journalist, I couldn't stay at home. I had to make sure that I documented uh, the, the time and, and the, the space that we were currently living in. Uh, photography for me, when I think of photography, I always think of its birthplace, which was uh, anthropology. And I try to use um, its historical factor still as part and parcel of my artistry. So like, I am there to document our current position. And then um, I, I did a series of work called uh, People versus Covert. Right. right? So I would um, explore the, 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 the vast contrast between how, how our township areas were, were being treated as areas of, of, of the, where the epidemic would spread. Versus suburbs where, you know, it was considered like this loose-ended, um, un unmonitored space, whereas in townships they would like be completely harassed, people would be told they need to stay indoors, there would be um, a huge visual difference between a township area and a suburb area based on the amount of police force present. Right. Um, and it was very interesting to see how where, you know, when, when the epidemic actually started, it was considered a traveler's bug mm-hmm. of sorts. You know? um, whereas in townships, there are not a lot of people that do travel. So they were actually the safest people, but yet they were the most monitored. Um, wow. So it, it was interesting. I mean, I still have this body of work that uh, myself and, and uh, myself, Koliwe and, and Zach, we, we fall under this collective called Ama Creatives. And we just went every day and we were just shooting random things <laughs> from, from empty streets of, of um, Joburg City to how people in townships actually uh, digested this information of a covert um, epidemic, you know. Yeah, it was just interesting. Like also one of the one things that I found very interesting when I was documenting this series of work is how people weren't wearing masks in townships, mm-hmm. you know, um, and yet the, the, the infection rate was quite low. Whereas in suburbs, you would have uh, considered a high infection rate, but yet everyone was still kind of mingling and going to stores, and, but they would wear masks and all of these things, but yet they weren't being monitored at all. I think I've mentioned that, but also the, how people interacted with one another was very like strange and like very, uh, it was such a very strange time the first few weeks of, of the covert because everyone didn't kind of know um, what was happening. Whereas in townships, people were just announcing that they were like this thing, doesn't exist here. We are very fine, um, but also just how how police brutality became very uh, increased largely, as well as femicide and rape was also increasing. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, there are so many things that you have said that I find really interesting, and I think that particularly in relation to your work, but how you know. I was speaking to someone about, you know, the COVID and he, we, we were talking about the numbers and I don't really know the numbers in South Africa, but we were talking about how 
you know, poor people are affected by um, other diseases, including COVID or whatever these things are, because poverty just, you're susceptible to other things. Um, but just even how they're managing it. And then you've got the additional stuff of, um, you know, gender-based violence, which is a huge thing. And we know in this country it was the same domestic violence increase because people are so contained and all these these other issues. But a lot of your work actually speaks to a lot of these, I guess, you, like you said, your work is journalistic as well as artistry. They kind of combine together. Tell me a little bit more about that. And then we're going to go backwards and find out how you started. So, yeah, I've got a, a current body of work that I've been currently working on, which is called Everything Must Fall. Um, it is, and in that, there's um, four pillars to this series of work. One is, like you've mentioned, GBV, um, but I've named it as a, the War on Women. So the series of work is based on the power of the hashtag. And because in South Africa, we are a generation of a flawless nation where we no longer have, we're no, we're no longer wanting to be bound by certain, um, certain rules. And, and then came about this idea of actually just hashtagging it fall at the end. So, you know, we have had this problem with fee, school fees and and I mean some very similar to anywhere else in the world which I just recently found out after finishing this this series of work on, on uh, fees must fall um, that is an awesome epidemic that happens in America and the UK where people are are shackled by the education system even after they're done studying you know, that they no longer um, can afford a certain lifestyle because they still have to pay off their school fees, debt, and you know the inequality that that it, that it stands for um, still uh, exists even after the education. That you know there's a huge stock difference between a black woman um, salary, a salary in, in in the states being split with all of her past education that she has to pay for, and I mean the lifestyle that she lives doesn't really reflect on the type of job that she has, you know, based on the debt that she has. Um, in our country, what's different was when we were liberated, we were promised this idea of free education that obviously never came because, um, because of a number of reasons. And so the one pillar is fees must fall. The second pillar is um, the war on women must fall. The third pillar is gender must fall because I think it also it's similar to the idea of of the war on women and how men see themselves is in, in this in this weird construct that, that that's called African and being an African man, um, but yet so I, I try and break down the idea of uh, gender must fall. Then there was Zuma must fall. So fees must fall and Zuma must fall are two exist the way existing um, hashtags, right? That I was just documenting and covering. Then one woman must fall was a hashtag that I created, which I thought would probably be something late on. I mean, I started this the, this body of work last year, and now GBV has obviously become such a big thing, but it, it's. So GBV um, stands for gender-based violence. Gender -based yeah. violence yeah, yeah. yeah, But I, I had renamed my series of work called Gender, The Worn Woman Must Fall um, as a series of work just covering 
how men has, have um, waged a war on women, but yet they haven't really called it that. Um, because I think they just want to kind of um, uh, tiptoe around the, the idea that it's, it's actually a war that just as much as, as uh, white, our, our white counterparts have waged a war against us, you know, um, I honestly think that as a male, there is an unwritten rule that men have, uh, have set in societal conditioning to the way we've been raised to think that it's okay to continuously beat women and, and um, position themselves according to our culture. Because um, I think the reason why most men feel that they can, they are own and possess women is because in, in their own cultural ways, they're always served by a woman and no matter what level um, she is in society, we would kind of still expect her to um, go to a, to an African cultural um, event and still be served by her, even if she's a lawyer and, and I am a, a sweeper, I am still entitled to the fact that she should serve me, which I honestly think that that is not, is not true, truly representation, uh, true representation of one's culture. I think um, a, a culture should be, be governed by respect and also knowing one's place in its culture, you know? So if you are above me, no matter what gender you are, I should, I should, I should gauge according to that, you know? Um, my responsibility as a person uh, should not be not be waged on the idea that it's only because I've got a penis. Hence, gender must fall, you know? Mm -hmm. then, I, then I took this series of work and I, uh, then I used uh, transgender to kind of help, um, help me illustrate the idea of men's sensitivity, especially homophobic men's sensitivity around the idea of respect and, and their positioning in, in society. Um, it was very interesting to watch this body of work and how people reacted to it because um, I also was tired of going to like to to Pride and uh, Pride Month and all of these things and find find myself speaking to the to the choir in in, mm -hmm. in a sense. Mm -hmm. So I tried to use my history of um, of sexualizing women when I was younger. I mean, from Backpage Babes when I was like sixteen, I used to photograph um, uh, women in bikinis uh, for the pleasure of a back page babe, right? And I was the youngest at doing so. I was that, well, most publishers didn't know that I was 16 years old doing this because my father used this to kind of teach me how to light, um, well, nat do natural lighting and, and photograph, and photograph and compose, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, and I was really good at it. And I used to, I was the highest paid photographer at that point during that, um, at the age of 16. So I used all that, that skill to later on kind of illustrate and sexualize transgender um, women so that I could gain the attention of homophobic men for them to have this internal communication with themselves wow. uh, about why how would they feel about being attracted to another man and how it's not as bad as they think it is. It's okay to be attracted because beauty, the, the essence of beauty is not based on, it, on its gender. You know, you don't say, 
um, if a man is beautiful, that it's, it's limited to the word handsome, you know? It's, mm-hmm. um, and I, so why I said I enjoyed watching that exhibition because they were in four different rooms. I'll, I'll come to Zumama's four, but they were in four different rooms. And um, so men would walk in and look for, for the female attributes, you know, because yeah. the face were beautiful and they're naked and it's like these poised images and then they would either storm out or just find themselves staring at this Im- image for way longer than they should um, because it was more a, an internal com- uh, conversation. I didn't want my viewer to nudge their friend next door to them to say, hey, do you notice that that's a gay person? You know, mm-hmm. I wanted to go I wanted them to be lured by the, the, the eyes and like how beautiful and sexy this, this person is. And they go, wow, am I, am I gay because I like something like this? Mm-hmm. I've been sensitive to people with the idea that maybe they also just see some, an object as beautiful and I've, I've ridiculed them according to that. Mm-hmm. How have how I engaged myself and society around my illness because I'm the ill one now. Wow. Yeah, Leroy, I've got so many questions to ask you, but I want to go right back and we're going to contextualize you and your work and then we're going to go back and we're going to talk about Zuma Must Fall. I have a lot of questions, but I want to know how actually did you get started? Because even just speaking to you, just this, this little amount, it has framed the images I have seen of yours with has given them far more depth to me because your work is, um, I like to say it's expository, like you're exposing, you're discussing, you're challenging us, but it's also journalistic and it's also political. And so let's go right back and tell me how did you start? Well, I started taking pictures at the age of 11. My father, my father was, my father still is a photographer and a journalist rightfully so because he still wakes up every day and he photographs all um, the, the, the ongoing things that are happening in the township that he enjoys photographing. So my father, when I grew up, I remember being at the age of six or five and someone had asked me what I want to do when I grow up and I remember saying I want to be a police officer. And my father turned around, first one, super angry um, because of, you know, he was also suffering from a lot of uh, PDS, uh, post, post-traumatic stress. Um, and he, because he was beaten by cops all of his life you know, um, as a black, black, black journalist, one, and just a black person in, in the, the rule of apartheid, um, that he told me that I was going to be a photographer. That was it, and I was going to kind of be the photographer that he had always wanted to be. So he could never go into commercial work or be a fashion photographer. Um, So as a photographer, he imposed all of that and conditioned me to think that I'm going to be a photographer, which I ended up doing. I tried running away from this uh, for many years because my father, um, because of his condition, and all the stuff that he was exposing himself to from the war in Rwanda or the genocide in Rwanda to the to apartheid and the war in Kosovo. He came home and was very abusive. 
you know. Um, because of that, my mom hated the idea of being a photographer. So when I was growing up, she didn't want to hear any of that photography stuff. She wanted me to be a marketer, go and live my life in, in an office somewhere and make real money. Because as an artist, the only thing you're good for is um, pretty pictures and um, a, a unstable income. Yes. Right? <laughs> She was right. I mean, I've got a lot of partners who can tell me that can tell you that story as well. So I then became a marketer. I remember I went to study marketing at TUT, but for some reason, uh, TUT is uh, sorry, Tswane uh, University of Technology okay. um, in Victoria. I I tried my utmost best to keep, keep the, the the idea for my mom alive that I would just kind of work in an office, which I did. I owned an advertising agency with my cousin and we were, and we were selling mobile advertising before it was as popular as it is right now. So we were going door to door to different agencies, explaining to them that they will use the mobile device as a new tool for marketing. They couldn't believe us. And be, while we were struggling and slugging through trenches, I would use the camera to kind of make a bit of money for myself and my cousin uh, for bread and like things mm -hmm. between just to kind of keep us afloat mm -hmm. until I couldn't make it for meetings anymore because people were just constantly wanting me to take photographs. They went from photographing events on weekends to try to photograph people uh, at their offices for corporate photographs and I was making money and I couldn't deny myself of them and then I had to make the hard decision of leaving letting go of my mom's dream and uh, everyone else's dream of having a stable income to being a photographer which I did uh, it was a hard decision but I had to make it it was um, but the thing is I knew that I had to make a decision that I wouldn't be a starving artist I would still kind of live up to liking things and traveling and wearing suits and, and enjoying enjoying the, the the crystals and the fine <laughs> fine wines, <laughs> you know, uh, because it comes with that. I just believe that uh, as an artist, I mean, I watch my father and his peers just go on being unrecognized in our country as as artists that have helped the helped revolution in a way of thinking. And, and made statements for our country globally um, have not been recognized. And I, I watched them just go and die as paupers um, because they also miss the fundamental things about the art form being something that can still make money in our time. I think that's the reason why I also became a, that, that's why I had to balance the idea of being a commercial photographer and an artist um, because uh, a lot of art galleries weren't signing photographers and the fact that I would have to be studied and um, how I articulate myself in a written in a, in a written form to kind of substantiate the way I think the way I think as, a, as an artist um, I struggled with that because I didn't study art in my my upbringing um, as, as an artist I kind of was self-taught in it that same sense, as well as my father. So I think that's why a lot of those artists didn't really make a lot of money because they were self-taught and they didn't contextualize it for white consumption. 
you know, because that's what the art world is for. The art world is there to, to, to be consumed by white collectors, you know. Um, uh, and my narrative was not was not about that. My narrative was more to kind of use art to revolutionize the way our us as black people see ourselves. Um, that's why I used this body of work called the Everything Must Fall, was to kind of bring symbols back into our society to to make us beautiful again. You know, not by your form, gender or um, or height or sexuality, you know, all of these things are just all symbols to kind of make sure that we reassess ourselves and, and correct our illnesses. Really interesting. It's, it's interesting because, you know, your father is actually a very well-renowned uh, wolf photographer, Farney, Farney Jason. You know, there's, he was in Rwanda, Kosovo, the West Bank. There are pictures, there's a very famous picture of him that he took of Mandela and Lady Diana. That's a very famous picture. That's why he loves London so much, right? Interesting. Yeah, and like Oprah Winfrey, like, you know, he's got, he has photographs that you don't know, you recognise a photo before you know that he is the one that actually took it, you know? Yeah. Now we know your trajectory, you know, your self-talk, but your eye, I mean, it's, it's so interesting because you, your, I find your work very provocative. I know you know how to do the commercial stuff, but your work is very challenging in a good way you know you're forced to ask questions it's not it's not what i would call it's not like sweet pretty stuff you're asking gritty stuff. stuff yeah right so i'm trying to get into that now though i think that's that's where i got to play a little bit better with with um gender must fall because i i wanted to be aesthetically pleasing and mm -hmm. i wanted to be like an airy fairy and i use my commercial um my commercial uh, skill set to kind of bring it in there and glamorize, you know, uh, yeah. these these subjects and not make it as dark and and, and gory as as all the other stuff because it's important though. I think um, I think it's important to 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 look at beauty and disgust in one image. I think mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. it, 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 uh, yeah. Well, perfect. Yeah. So let's move on. Let's get back to everything must fall and talk a little bit about your process. You know, I was, I read somewhere the statistics, uh, South Africa has the highest rape statistics in the world. Yes. Which is, I mean, yeah, it's, it's extremely problematic. And you, I mean, there are a few pictures that I want to talk to you about. You have some of like uh, this woman in a bath and the bath is full of blood and there's like a, a cow head there. Yes. And then there's another image of a woman um, with like a gash on her face and it's kind of blood streaming down her face you, they're kind of staged aren't they like is, is it an actual cut on her face or was it blood work that was yeah, yeah it was all staged um, so tell so, me a bit about that talk about your process through that and again but why is it so important to talk about this sort of as you call it a war on women okay so just to just to bring in the process of of, uh, of my work when it came to the war on women, I used a lot of um, influential faces, um, a lot of actors, because I shoot a lot of movie posters. So 
TV and movie posters. I love working with actors because they kind of give me the characters that I want mm -hmm. immediately without uh, taking that long process of understanding what I'm trying to get at. They also understand how camera works and lighting works. Uh, so it just it clicks. Um, and it's always fun. So I just love, like, I love the idea of movies and, and that's, it, it allows you to just explore and, and transcend yourself into a different space, especially when you're in the studio. Um, so when I shot the, the stuff on the women face called Gashed Up, I was approached by this group of this actor, um, TV presenter, so she was running a campaign on gender-based violence and she wanted to bring awareness to it. It was very, it was kind of still bubbling under, everyone was talking in little kitchens and corners about it. It wasn't really a, a conversation that was on the table and, and needed to be blazed, like it was a, a heat, a needed to be a heated discussion about putting an end to it. It was just like, ah, uh, you know, our president, he's got like a multiple wives and, you know, there's this history that we have of all these, of our ex-president before that was known to beat his wife, you know, and it was, it was okay, you know, it was like, um, we all came from this societal um, norm of your wife being, um, you know, uh, either humiliated or like stripped naked in the street and beaten and, um, especially the society that I came from, I would, you know, my, I remember my father once told me the first time he saw a woman putting an accent in a man because she was just tired of being beaten every day. Um, I grew up in a household where I witnessed, um, you know, abuse constantly. Um, I then, a, a lot of the, the time when I started out um, photography, my process was more to face my fears was to look at something dead square in the eye and understand the, the weight of it, you know? Um, so seeing someone be, so I found a, an amazing makeup artist that could do scarification and scars and stuff. And then I took a group of very, very, very influential females in our, in, in, in our um, celebrity world mm -hmm. and I asked them to kind of do this thing and scarred them all up and we released each image on social media because at the time my knowledge of social media and how I wanted to transition um, a, a message from uh, which was considered below the line into a mainstream conversation was by using these famous faces and also having these images just go viral so much that later on a TV newspaper, everybody started talking about this um, and it became that conversation. And that was the type of message that I wanted to drive home is, is to see your favorite celebrity, your sister, your mother being scarred, you know, off of the idea of this. I mean, I remember once when I grew up, my sister challenged, well, she didn't even challenge me. She just told me such an important thing. And, and that's when I realized I was trash, <laughs> right? Because um, not a lot of men walk around, they always defend this idea that, oh no, I'm not trash, but we still have trashy ways, you know? Um, uh, we might not want to beat our mothers and sisters, but we are okay with being abusive to our girlfriends or, or women that, that we think that we can just have sex with whenever we want to. Um, so that's why I took these celebrity faces and, and I did that. 
Um, the same thing that happened with this, those women in the bathtub covered in blood was more about, um, then, okay, fast forward, after shooting that, I no longer want to see women in, in, in this powerless state where they were abused. And, you know, so I changed that whole thing from make it stop to hashtag take your power back. Um, but I think it was still in my infant way of, well, it was still like a, a, a unrefined way of thinking about how I was going to go about pushing this message out. I later on uh, created this, this image of this woman in a, a bathtub full of blood um, on a bathtub that was, that was held up by bricks. Um, and I, I, took, I was fascinated with the cow head because that was, that was the symbol of, of what we deemed our women or our wives as we, after, we, after we married them. We kind of gave them cows, right? And then what happens to those cow heads? And I remember once when my father was getting a divorce and he, were, he started understanding his position and, and he had told me while he was bawling and was crying and he told me that, because he was trying to convince my mom to stay, whatever, after the abuse and all of that. But he had told me that a woman is not like cattle. You can't, you can't make them come and go as you please, you know. Um, you know, where I'm from or, or, or farms, you would, you would let your cattle out and they would find their way back, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but women are not cattle. And we, we as, as men need to stop behaving as if our women are, cat, are cattle. Um, and that's why I put it into this container called the war on women, because it's, it's, that, it's those conditioning and those the thoughts, the old school thought, um, the other way around, <laughs> thought school, school, school of thought. thought yeah. <laughs> so, so that's, that's where this body of work started coming about, is, the, is how we, I started looking at how I, how I saw men and uncles treat their women and I also wanted to understand that we had, I was also, I was on the tipping point of just understanding that we had to recondition our way of thinking altogether. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't just a trashy behavior, it was just like this thing that we considered being African. It wasn't being African, it wasn't being African to segregate our women and, 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 um, and have this entitlement um, over individuals that are people just as we are. We got dehumanized as male men. I understand historically um, where the only time a man ever felt like he was a man was coming back home, you know, um, because he'd be dehumanized outside of that in his workplace where he, um, and that's why I used the, the cow head because, you know, it's, it's that symbol of, of one culture of two, like um, this beastly way of thinking um, and how we treat our, and that's why I, I had to save, try to use it to save our, our the, a cow's head because to, to illustrate how beastly we are um, and, and in, in, the, in the way in which we treated our women. But also the fact that when you take her horns off of a cow, it's still a cow. You know, um, you know, bulls horns off of the cow, and it's still it's all the same thing. You know, and that's why you'd find all of all of those images, all the frames. The, the I would always keep the horns somewhere in the frame. I see. I have my brain is like 
going, going, because I, I'd really be interested to know, you know, how, how are men engaging with this work? Because often, you know, women will engage with it and they're saying things that they already know. But what I'm hearing from you, and it's interesting because obviously there have been some recent like horrific cases of violence against women. I heard this one awful story of um, a, a ma this woman, I think was at a family member's funeral and the boyfriend came to the funeral and murdered her there. And I know that men, and this was, I think, I want to say like a few weeks ago, um, that men are just saying, you know what, enough is enough about this kind of behavior. So I guess I wanted to ask you, how are men engaging with this work and, and really sort of thinking intellectually and emotionally about how they take ownership for their behavior, the way you're sort of talking about you have taken ownership of yours, how are men engaging with your work? So I'm, I'm sad to say that, that they still haven't really understood not a lot of them and like engage with the work from from what i've just spoken about and like illustrated a lot of them just kind of look at it as just horrific images of of a woman laying in a bathtub in blood in a wedding dress um and and don't associate that to what is happening either their next door neighbor's house or with within their own um, environment. Uh, a lot of a lot of the times, men have this thing where there is violence happening, but we just try and keep it on that end. It's like how white people would treat racism. You know, they would they know that it exists. Some some of the intellectuals will know that it exists and know how to confront it. The others that choose not to engage with it will be like, we're not all racist, and all lives matter. You know. Mm -hmm. uh, um, so there's a lot of, there's still a lot of work to be done, but I thought that's why I, I watched that body of work and I realized my frustration in it. And that's why I took gender must fall because I thought it was a little bit more malleable for, for homophobic men, because ideally the problem is the homophobic men, I think, because the, the moment you find somebody that is either fluid or just, um, or, or just compassionate then you would then they no longer become homophobic as well right right so so i thought maybe in order for me to gauge that audience i needed a, a, a different vehicle and then i i i focused my energy around um gender must fall and and the lgb uh, community as as something that needs to be spoken about and also be be celebrated, mm -hmm. not not know that it exists. It needs to be celebrated. It needs to be. I mean, we need to celebrate the idea of somebody not thinking in a binary form mm -hmm. because already that is because of that. I think that has been the lead of the leading cause behind abusive behavior or dealing with your emotions incorrectly because. Um, you don't know how to, one, first gauge your sexuality because a lot of abuse and all of these things come from places of frustration, you know, um, and, and those things we need to speak about, you know. Um, so if we celebrate this idea of a non-binary society, then we can also start, start weeding out what the true emotional problems are for, 
for the for the others that exist that still continue to become violent you know very powerful stuff very powerful stuff Let, let's yeah I, i'm sort of really pondering because there's so much you you have said but i it kind of all fits in with you know south africa's political history you have very powerful images it's it's funny because your 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 photography is very it's full of movement i say it's very kinetic so you have a a, a fan i mean it's a fantastic picture but a terrible picture of a man he's been sprayed uh, with tear gas by police but there's it's incredible because there's so much movement it almost looks like a dance but then an awful thing is happening tell me a little bit more because i put a pin in it earlier but i want you to talk to me about zuma must fall and you know a lot of with a violent history comes all of this stuff there comes trauma with it and there has to be a place to process the trauma because if there isn't it's almost like everyone's just about to explode all the time so talk to me a little bit about that and sort of violence and how you photograph police violence because you do it so well i mean there's even a terrifying picture of you with a gun to your head a, a police officer <laughs> tell me about that and then we'll move on to zuma must fall um yes I, I i love how you've described my work it, a lot a lot of my work is all about movement even when it's still i wanted to move i i enjoy the idea that um because in in that movement for me is where the dialogue is you know so i you know i i enjoy the idea that um my composition always encompasses eye movement you'll never you'll never look at my image and be stuck on one object one your eye won't be stuck in one place in, in my image it will always just be a lot for you to digest and in your eye movement because that's that is how i see the world as when i when i sit and look at people i don't necessarily i i analyze psychoanalyze people based on their eye movement you know uh what what draws their eye and where and what i enjoy about photography is creating frames that 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 inform that eye movement and, you know um and it drives one to to constantly trying to connect dots um because i think that as a child that's my that was my biggest thing as well right uh, i don't know if you ever did that connecting dots uh, no um no things that um it was called connecting connecting the dots right um, i don't know i th- i can visualize what you're talking about but i don't think i played it so yeah it's like a bunch of dots and they have numbers to them and then you have to kind of connect the dots and create a duck or like a, an animal so that's where where the, the beginning of Zuma must fall for me came from was also that movement was was to try and show that even though we've moved from from apartheid but our our story is still the same you know and we're still we're still under a so politically if you look at historically apartheid was wasn't it was largely about the differentiation between black and white mm-hmm. but the driving force behind it was economics right it was about uh, cheap labor and creating cheap labor because that was the that that was the economics um and the majority if you kept them uh, at a 
quote using a minimum wage quota to kind of pay them is is the way in which you can kind of keep uh, labor low and uh, what labor costs low so you can keep churning out more product um, and that's why the rand was to the dollar at the time because economically we were churning and manufacturing things um, at, a, at a cheaper rate than anywhere else in the world so fast forward to to during zuma's era we i had found that it almost felt as if it was just the change over of management the change of change of management as in the sense that there were black, black people now in power but yet the same policies were still in place mm-hmm. um corruption and, and and unfortunately what zuma stood for now in, in the area in which he ran for was corruption mm-hmm. he he was the the guy that that everyone glorified for not have studied or worked his way to the top it was all conniving and uh, and exploiting people and then and then you get rich so this uh, even in his era there there was this thing called uh, tenderpreneurs where guys would say that they would go and build schools in somewhere get given heaps of money to do it but instead of doing the work correctly they would be going out uh, blessing blessing women flying them to dubai and all kinds of stuff but not uh, but not being patriotic and that for me was what my gripe was with this era you know and that's why i i really behind like um zuma must fall because he stood for everything that i was against for my for the the survival of my for of our, my country and my my and it, and his existence on its on this continent mm-hmm. um, uh and the progression that it in it needed to make for as an example for for everything else in our in our country in our continent and the world itself you know so that's why zuma must zuma must fall he still has it fallen even fees has it fallen all of the things that i actually that's why i say it's an ongoing exhibition for me because none of the things that i've put in in this exhibition has come to an end yet mm-hmm. so constantly still shooting it i'm still shooting um gender the one woman zuma must fall because now he's still going through his trial right now yeah um but it was more about embossing the idea that we need to be we, we need to bring back patriotism back into our country and understand that we serve our country we we don't look how this how the country should serve us and rape it and leave nothing in its coffers I and mean, we've seen so many african co- countries become just like that by allowing individuals or rulers like that to continue It's so interesting what you talk about not being patriotic because I think in the west patriotism is a bit of a prickly word. I think I would say we kind of have attached patriotism to nationalism which is stuff that you know and then it's kind of far rightism. But yeah. you you know but you're not talking about that and I'd love you to sort of you kind of defined it already but I'd like you to sort of tell me when you talk about patriotism and being a South African patriot which is 
Yeah, I'd like you to talk to me a little bit about what you think that what that means to you. I think, like I say, I think you've touched on it, but I'd like you to tell me a little bit more about what that means. So, um, you know, being a South African, you know, what's what's interesting is that we still have the word African in it. So we are African first, you know, and then we're South African. I, this is the problem is a lot of South Africans have been conditioned to think that they are an island off the coast of Africa, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that's why xenophobia, xenophobia last year was such a big thing and all the other years is because we try and disconnect ourselves from something that already exists. And we, can't, we, can, no longer, we can no longer use the West conditioning to... To, to kind of hide behind this. I think it's, it's now in our own right now. Um, so, because we don't really necessarily want to be patriotic to our own country, let alone our, our continent. Mm-hmm. So, being a South African patriot to me is someone that ce- celebrates the idea of, of who. Who, who we are yet to become, you know, so we celebrate the, the person that we're about to become so much so that our future should thank who we are right now. Wow. You know, so that is a being a patriot for me. That's, that's where, when the world, when our country has gone up in flames, we, we have the ones who haven't put you know, that they haven't really contributed to its, its ascension and only contributed in raping and, and paying your domestic worker um, according to, to uh, minimum wages is, for me, is still, you can't, call it, you can't say Black Lives Matter when you say things like that, when you do things like that. You can't, you can't go about um, only being proud to be black when there's only white people in the room, you know. Um, a South African patriot for me is knowing and celebrating every little thing that makes up our country. And that includes, includes Africans because, you know, as much as, I mean, I, I, worked, I worked for a political party after Zuma must fall. They saw my work. I actually approached them and I told them, look, I, I really like what they're doing because they're a young um, political party and I believe that um, we need to be ruled by young people. We, you know, old people are only going to take us to where they know best, where they, they, their heading is the grave. You know, when they were young, they, they that's why a lot of them were uh, freedom fighters because they understood what it meant for their country. The older they got, they realized that they, they need to fatten their own pockets because they're about to die. Um, and that's why they, they, they no longer serve us. Uh, anyway, so I worked for this political camp, uh, party for a while, but it made me realize that, you know, when, when you are in France, and when I went to France for the first time, I was astonished by how, when you spoke in English, that it actually made life so much harder for you. Um, yeah. and, and, and that is being patriotic for me. That's like... We believe in our own values, right? But yet we are willing to encompass everything that exists. But, but you should step into this space knowing that this is what 
governs it. Not you don't you don't govern it. We we govern it. Mm -hmm. The same way when it comes to identity. I I love the idea that when you walk when you try and identify someone, you should you should identify them based on how they identify themselves first and respect that and then you address them according to that instead of the other way around and you dictate to them how they should mm -hmm. be acting. Mm -hmm. So same the same way should that's the same way we should see our own country. We we should allow ourselves to to embrace ourselves first and, and respect ourselves so much so that that others will respect us. We can't expect people uh, to respect us if we can't respect ourselves. And that that for me is being patriotic. Yeah, very, very interesting. So I, I mean I think in many ways you've kind of already spoken into this, but who or what informs your work? Well, I mean, now I, at the end of the day, I enjoy photographing people, you know, and, and how society and, and how they fit into society. And when I do portraits of people, I, I always tell my subjects that I'd love to, I'd love to photograph you in such a way that you would recognize yourself, but you don't recognize yourself. I want to show you parts of yourself that, you know, you were either afraid of looking at or you didn't realize existed, you know? Um, and how I, how I go about doing that is literally watching how they move their eyes first when they're in my studio and I'm facing them. I, I can notice that they, they think that this side is a bit more more appealing for them because they probably look at themselves like this in the mirror. So I use moments like that to kind of uh, change how they see themselves and, and also just get them to appreciate more of themselves. Okay. Right? Um, so what informs my work is, is actually the people that I photograph, not, not the viewers who I, who I think would look at it. I, when I um, when I go about photographing anyone, I first and foremost want to to glorify them and also show them that God exists inside them. I mean, that is my start of any of any project of any step I go into. I always start with understanding that oh, God exists and God has given me this the the, the opportunity to kind of work uh, through. Um, well, have him work through me, and if if that is the case, what is the message around that? I I once when I was young, I, I like everyone else had to do set work on Shakespeare, right? Mm -hmm. And I realized that Shakespeare's characters were ordinary men that he just gave power to, you know, um, and because he started from a point of giving his characters power is when you want to start analyzing each character, you know? So I realized that when I photograph my subjects, I need to make sure that they, are, they need to see themselves as powerful in order for my viewers to want to nitpick who they are as, as an individual and also just recognize God in, in them. Um, so that is what informs my work largely. That's very powerful. You have a lot of insight, you clearly take a lot of time to think about what you're making, why you're making it, how are you going to make it? But are there any, are there any lessons you have learned 
on this journey that we could learn from? There's so many lessons. I think um, taking risks is one of them. Um, you know, um, not limiting one's thought process to a singular way of thinking. I, I, still, I still believe in the idea of being a master of one and not trying necessarily be a jack of all trades. But you could if, if you're selling the same product in different forms, you know. Um, like that's what I'm embarking on now. I've just turned my fabric, I mean, I've just turned my images into fabric. Wow. Uh, I've just done a collection with a, a group called Amen, where, where we've taken images like you've seen and turned them into, into a fabric that would uh, make a garment because because I'm not a, a signed artist, I'm an independent artist. I'm not signed to any galleries. I have to find innovative ways to kind of sell my prints and become a household name. Because in my head, that's still the aim, right? It's still to kind of make sure that I, I sell art pieces or photographs because that is, I want that to become my income. I don't want to necessarily want to still go out and photograph according to a brief. I want to determine my own brief. Um, so in order for me to do that, I needed to maybe change, and then I realized I needed to change the form of my content. Um, maybe because people don't necessarily buy prints anymore, right? Um, especially the target market that I want as a collector, they don't buy prints. Who is the um, target market? Black affluential individuals. The problem is black people don't buy art. <laughs> well, they do. Let me not lie. African people tend not to buy art, but they tend to buy clothing more. Mm. And so, so I've, I've turned my work into wearable art. You know? Amazing. So, why sorry i just i just i do i want to probe this a bit further having friends who are gallerists and collectors and curators who are african and um, tell me why do you think africa your target market tend not to buy art that you hang on the wall but will buy art that you put on your body why do you think that is um because because of um I think the lack of understanding of how money works, you know, if you think about it like that, if, if, if you track how most Af African people would buy cars instead of property, already it tells you the, the shift in understanding of what, how to break generational curses. How do you, I mean, we, we, form a, <laughs> we form a society that will leave bills instead of wills. You know what I mean? Okay. Like, okay. So, so, and that, and that is, that, and that is the, the next form. And, you know, and that's why I said I'm still stuck to, I'm trying to sell to that target market because I think that is, that is the people, those, those are the people that will appreciate the, my work. Uh -huh. um, versus trying to repackage it for for European consumption. I, I, I mean, it could be European, uh, you know, I, if people can associate and want to do what they want to do. But I personally want to use my, my work as a message to 
to people that don't value themselves and who think that valuing themselves means wearing a Gucci shoe mm-hmm. instead of buying a, um, a basquiat. You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, that, and that's how we break our generational curses is, is mm-hmm. to create um, African people that, that see the value in, in holding on to something that their children would maybe one day sell. I mean, I, I know my father's got so many pieces that I can't wait for the day that that man goes. I know that there's work. <laughs> yeah, maybe <laughs> reframe how you say that. I can't wait to like that. Man goes. You don't mean that. You mean? I mean that he lives, he lives forever, but the day that he goes, that I know that he's left a legacy behind, you know? And, um, and I hope that he, he lives as long. God makes sure that he, he, he gets all of his flowers while he still lives. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do know that he has made sure that we lived, we would, I would be comfortable, in this, or my children would be comfortable. And I want to continue that, mm-hmm. that, that culture and tradition. Mm-hmm. Making sure that my children should be comfortable and their children should be comfortable. So just to bring it back, so that's why I thought the best way to kind of make sure that my work goes into households is, is first through clothing and apparel. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to use the same fabric to do interior. So bed sheets, um, bed sheets, pillowcases, curtains, um, camping chairs, all that sort Amazing. of thing. Um, but ideally, that, I thought that was the best vehicle to kind of get it into the household. And then from there, it will be wearable on. I wanted stuff where you could hang something on the wall and still mm. speak its importance and its, uh, and, and its gravitas. Okay, that's amazing. So going back to lessons, the f- you said risk. And I mean, I've heard you say that you're not afraid to die. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I mean, that's a weighty yeah. thing to say. It is. I mean, look, I think if you believe in something, uh, in the words of Chang Li, if you die, you die. <laughs> you know? I, think, I think if you believe in something strong enough, um, you know, like Nelson Mandela said, if, you know, it's, it's a... Um, it, it, it's something that you should be willing to die for, a cause mm-hmm. that you're willing to die for, then what's the point of living for you? If, if mm. your cause is very, is paper thin, uh, no pun intended, and it relies a lot of, around money, yeah, so then you're, you, you have cheapened your death, well, your, your life, I think. You know? mm-hmm. uh, I, I believe that that, that you're, you're placed on earth, just as, you know, we're just following tradition, if you think about it this way. If my father had fought a struggle for me, what am I doing for my children? Mm-hmm. What struggle am I fighting right now to make sure that my children do no, no longer have to face the same problems that I've been faced with? Mm-hmm. That's tradition. That's the tradition. As Africans, we've, we've come from, we've come from, a history of of colonialism and all of these these uh, we've started from the bottom. I mean, even though as much as we were we were kings and queens, and now we're we're trying to to try to get back to the state of uh, of um, uh, of royalty. And how can we do that if if we don't 
how do you how do you create an empire if you don't start with with making your sacrifices now? Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Okay. What music are you listening to right now? Um, right now, I'm listening to a lot of R&B because I've just come out of a breakup. R&B to make you feel good. R&B, I mean, also just like to put a lot of things in context. I mean, nowadays R&B versus the golden oldies is two different R&B. Now, uh, the R&B today kind of is very... It's soothing, it's soul soothing in the sense that it's about self-preservation, you know, instead of trying to get your lover back or, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or, it's more about like saving one's soul versus trying to save another, you know. Yeah, it's, un- okay, give me an example of some of the current R&B that you're listening to that's like that. Uh, Scissor, okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, like Janae. Um, oh, Janae Aiko. Aiko. Um, there's, a, there's a bunch of artists like, like these. I mean, there's um, uh, Elaine, which is South African. But, but now that you say that you're a musician, have you, ever, have you ever tried using images to inform songs sorry i know i'm not made to ask questions but no you can't well i mean i only the way i write is by seeing so i usually i will have some images in my head and then i'll write from them and as i'm writing i have a whole visual in my head a whole story going on Thank you so much to Leroy Jason. As I said at the top of this episode, our conversation isn't finished, so you'll have to tune in next week to hear part two. In the meantime, please be sure to explore Leroy's work, follow him on Instagram, details of which are in the podcast blurb. If our discussion on domestic violence and gender-based violence impacted you, there are some links to support services and charities for men and women, but given the focus of our discussion, the organisations are geared towards men. I asked people who know the areas of mental health and sexual violence really well, so these organisations are recommended and are based in both the UK and South Africa. I also asked a South African psychotherapist friend of mine who studied and trained for many years in South Africa and she advised that for those who are on medical aid, you may be able to apply for up to 15 therapy sessions. I want Holding Up the Ladder to be a resource space, so I hope this information is helpful. And by now, you know that Holding Up the Ladder is available on a range of different platforms, including Acast, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher and Deezer. Please continue to share, like, subscribe to the podcast, leave comments. You can also donate to the podcast. Thank you so much to those who have done so already. Just click the link below and you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Holding Up the Ladder, hashtag H-U-T-L. Join me next week for part two of my conversation with Leroy Jason. You can't be too, too attached to the idea that you're exposing yourself and they'll remember you for that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the world forgets. There's something else to worry about tomorrow. Until next time.